Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Is data privacy still something businesses need to worry about? With financial pressures, rising inflation, the continuing aftermath of the pandemic and the ongoing challenge of recruiting skilled people, especially for technical roles, it would be understandable if privacy was slipping down the agenda. Our guest this week, though, argues that it's wrong to overlook privacy concerns and data protection. Camilla Winlow is Head of Data Privacy at GemServe. She points to new legislation, the need to use data to create a competitive advantage, and even the growth of AI as reasons to pay attention to data privacy. So, should it still be a board-level concern? I know when I'm sort of taking part in the general data protection community, there are definitely some people who are seeing organisations not taking it seriously at all, getting quite frustrated with some of the things that, you know, potentially their clients might be doing. Um, It's not particularly what I'm seeing, though, I have to say. Um, So for the sorts of clients that I tend to work with, um, obviously I get brought in because they're at least somewhat interested in data privacy or they wouldn't be paying me any money to help them do it well. Um, But for those organisations, what I'm actually seeing is organisations perhaps starting to be a little bit more mature in what they're looking at doing and and doing it in a slightly more sophisticated way. Um, And by that, I mean bringing me in a bit earlier than they used to do. So if I compare how organizations interact with me and my team now compared with what it was like when GDPR first came in, um, back then you had a lot of organizations who'd ask you to make something compliant right at the end after it was already built. And that I think has now happened often enough that those organizations who build things are starting to recognize that that's actually a really difficult way around to do it. And it leaves you with a lot of headaches and they're starting to learn the value of bringing data privacy in a bit earlier and really starting to sort of build it in right from the concept stage, right from the beginning. And I can think of even conversations that I've been having today where, you know, it's been all about how do we make sure that we're really thinking about this early enough. Um, If you look at the World Cup that we've just had, um, again, looking where I look, I've seen quite a lot of discussions about things like the cybersecurity around apps that um, people were being asked to put onto their phone. Um, I've also seen uh, cybersecurity discussions about other things like period tracking apps and things of that sort recently. And, And I do see it as being something that appears to be being picked up outside of what you might call the hardcore data privacy community um, and getting a bit more into consumer press as well, that ordinary people are starting to understand some of the risks that can go along with technology. And I think if you look at some of the research that's being done, that's starting to be borne out as well in um, a greater level of engagement and understanding and a greater desire to be part of the conversation and to actually understand what people are intending to do with their data. Um, that's not obviously to say that everybody absolutely cares about it and it's at the top of their shopping list, but I do think it's going up the agenda, certainly in some areas. And oftentimes, you only really hear about data regulation when there's some form of breach. A lot of individuals and organizations deployed new technology quite rapidly during lockdown. 
And there was a privacy as well as a security element to those things because you're asking people to, for example, connect you know, through their private broadband connection to a corporate network and asking people, uh, for example, to sign up to terms and conditions that allowed some degree of control over their device. At the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing people turning to consumer-oriented technologies that solved problems, exchanging data or whatever it was. But again, quite often you're handing over you know, significant amounts of personal information in order to get those services for free. And it's not always the case that people read the terms and conditions. Arguably, it's quite often the case that most of us don't. But when you're saying there's more awareness, what's driving that awareness? Is it data breaches or is it more scrutiny from outside agencies, from regulators? Why are we saying actually some of these applications that do interesting things but perhaps don't have privacy at the centre of their architecture are being called out for it? If we look at what happened through the pandemic, I think that's really instructive. So, and, and it's a really good example because I think the general public learned about a few things that in much greater depth than they've ever understood before. Um, and we've ended up with a, a, you know, a, a world full of people who know a lot more about things like epidemiology and infectious disease control than they ever would have done previously. Um, and I think the same happened with privacy, strangely. So, um, what, what I saw with privacy was, let's take the example of Zoom, for example. So Zoom and video conferencing platforms in general just weren't used that much prior to the pandemic. Homeworking was the, you know, it was the exception, not the norm. Um, most organizations that were supporting any kind of video technology is pretty basic. Um, and then Everybody started, or office workers, I should say, started working from home because we were asked to do that in the pandemic. And suddenly there was a huge uplift. And like the, the growth of those platforms went from being little backwaters in large companies or small startups that weren't, you know, particularly getting the kind of traction they have today. And they suddenly exploded. Um, and what you saw at the same time as that was happening was that the privacy concerns around that were making the mainstream news in a way that would never have happened previously. So I remember through the pandemic, things like, you know, photographs of cabinet um, Zoom screens being shown and people pointing out that the ID for the Zoom meeting was visible on the screen and therefore that somebody who had that would be able to join the meeting and those controls weren't there. Um, I remember reading all sorts of different things about um, access to video cameras and microphones when people were suddenly working from home and potentially working from you know, private domestic spaces or having their work equipment available during private domestic times. And those kinds of things getting traction in blogs and news articles. Um, so you know, in, in places where people are asking questions and having discussions, not just amongst privacy professionals who are thinking about those challenges, but actually the people using them are starting to ask questions and say, well, hold on, I'm being asked to sign up to, con to conditions that allow my employer to monitor me remotely. And yet there's nothing in here saying that they're not going to be monitoring remotely outside of working hours, for example. 
And those sorts of things are, you know, like I said, at the same time that people are becoming more sort of armchair epidemiologists and learning so much more about disease spread and viral load and all of those things that went with COVID, they were also learning way more about rules around privacy and about the kinds of ways that technology allows organizations to intrude into our private lives and having opinions about it. And, you know, and and it goes from being something that's unseen and potentially doesn't feel like it's happening to you to being something where actually you're a lot more conscious of what potentially is going on um, and, and a lot more conscious of the fact that actually, you know, some of these things aren't right or you need to be giving your perspective of it to employers who are thinking about it only in one direction. Um, employee monitoring, for example, the employers who were trying to implement those kinds of programs, you know, there was a bit of an outcry for some of them. Um, and it led to people not just feeling like their privacy was being intruded on, but also feeling like they were being infantilized by employers who didn't trust them to be able to work from home. Um, and I think most people would say that there's a sort of a two stream effect going on where, you know, some people have found working from home very comfortable um, and became more productive. Others, it wasn't like that for them, but also that taking that sort of one size fits all approach to all of those different situations and seeing it as a challenge that needs to be solved by that kind of intrusive technology, rather than thinking about upskilling your management team with the right kinds of management skills to deal with problems that people might be having. Um, I think people were sort of really having that discussion about whether this was the right way to do it and becoming much more educated as, as the pandemic went on about some of the ways that technology could be intruding into their lives and seeing it far more than they used to. That realisation, though, actually is very empowering. Definitely. Um, and it, it, it's, I suppose the other thing is for people that, when you start finding that you're being educated on things that you'd never thought you were going to be interested in, um, it makes you appreciate that actually, you know, you do have the skills and with the motivation to do it, anybody can become very interested in pretty much anything. Um, and actually, you know, you can look at organizations and think, well, they've written a privacy notice. It's not really for me, but actually you can get to grips with that and you can think about it. And perhaps you have learned some of the places that you can go to research those things in slightly more user-friendly ways because we've got a long way to go with organizations making privacy information as user-friendly as it could be, although I see that improving as well. Um, but you, you are in a position now where I think people are, you know, not everybody, but enough people are looking for that kind of information and are making thoughtful choices now. Whether that's always as apparent to the organisations as it should be, I don't know. Um, I know I myself, for example, have dropped out during sales processes because I haven't liked the sort of general approach to privacy that I'm seeing. And I'm not sure how obvious that would be to an organization that they're losing sales in that way. Um, but I think people are seeing it in themselves. And over time, you're definitely seeing organizations taking privacy a lot more seriously and starting to have sales messages that really center around their approach to privacy and how seriously they're taking it now. Um, knowing that knowing that their clients care. At the individual level, it's probably not obvious at all. I would imagine that unless an organization does some form of follow-up survey, 
that type of qualitative work, it'd be very hard to tell that somebody had decided not to purchase a product because of an issue with privacy. Perhaps more if they'd stopped using a product because of it, if there's some form of exit interview. But again, that's done quite rarely. So I suppose that businesses could only really see that data in aggregate. Does that affect their ability to deal with it and to prioritise privacy, though? Well, I think that's always been a question for market research, hasn't it? What what exactly are you going to research? What are the questions that are pressing for your organisation? Um, and to an extent, I suppose you could say that if people have been relying on information collected through technologies like cookies to answer those sorts of questions, even if you're collecting lots of data, you still have to ask good questions of the data in order to get useful answers. So, um I guess I'm sure you're right. Um, the information is out there, though, and it can easily be found. There are lots of good inf uh, organizations who are producing research about consumer attitudes to um, data processing. The ICO very much encourages people to do their own focus groups and to do their own research into finding out how their own customers and their own prospective customers and their own employees as well, because they're important too, um, how they all think about data processing um, and what they're seeing. And if organizations are choosing not to do that, then you know they're, they're as blind to an important commercial aspect of their organization as if there was any other important part of the sales funnel that they were not understanding properly. Well, indeed. So how likely are we to see changes as the UK legislative landscape changes? And we've got the proposed data reform bill, which may potentially unpick some of what's in GDPR. What's your summary of what's likely to be in that legislation and how much of an impact is it going to have on organisations that currently handle volumes of personal information, personal data? I see the bill as really interesting. Um, so there's been a lot of conversation about exactly what's going to be in it. And we won't know for sure until the next draft comes out. Um, so we know that the government at the moment is carrying out some consultations with business. That suggests to me that they're trying to make it more business friendly. But we also know that there are sort of natural constraints around what can be done. So they've also said that they don't want to lose adequacy with Europe. So it still needs to be somewhat aligned to the general goals of the GDPR. Um, we also know that we're now working in a, a global data ecosystem as well. And generally, a lot of the laws that are around the world and being developed are aligned to GDPR um, and to the principles that underpin the GDPR. So we can't go a million miles away from that. Um, but there are things that they are intending to do. So we know that they're looking at trying to create a slightly more bespoke um, data processing environment in the UK than you might have in other places. And that's really interesting for me. And the reason that I find that particularly interesting is um, there are some kinds of innovations where the specifics of the way that GDPR works are not particularly well tailored to that type of, inter of interface uh, or that type of, um, of device or processing activity. Um, and what I think the data 
protection and digital information bill in the UK is trying to do is give organizations a little bit more flexibility to create something that works slightly better for their processing conditions. So they're taking away some of the specific things, but leaving the underlying objective that largely seems to be what's happening. Um, and that puts you in a position where it opens, potentially opens up the UK for research and development. Um, and for creating and proving that you can do things in safe ways um, that may have been a little bit more challenging. And I think, you know, the, the Europe would agree that there are ways that GDPR, you know, perhaps isn't quite perfect, um, whether it actually you know, they want to go through the palaver of changing it, I don't know. But um, it's really interesting that the UK is having a look at those things and seeing what can be done. Um, so the kinds of things that I have in mind are, um, for example, GemServe does work around smart devices, and we, we're trying to do a lot of work around the low carbon economy. Um, and if you want to collect data in a way that helps you do things like balance energy loads or look at how people are using new green technologies, sometimes that requires you to collect consent in a way that's really, really difficult to do from a solar panel or an electric vehicle charger. Um, and um, sometimes um, there are sort of, you know, it can almost be sort of consent fatigue or difficulties really um, explaining things to people in a way that actually, you know, they can understand the objective of it and, and they understand for themselves the, the benefit versus the cost to them of having their data processed in those different ways. So I think if the government is starting to look at those kinds of things and think about actually, you know, is it possible that organizations could come up with a way of doing this, given slightly more freedom, that allows them to still continue to focus hard on protecting data? That's really important. And I think the government's been clear that that's the intention, um, but gives them a bit more flexibility to make it work for their customers and their circumstances. Um, I think that's quite quite interesting and I'm, I'm interested to see where they take that. So is what you're saying then that under the existing GDPR and the national legislation that follows from it, it's actually quite hard to do some of the work that people want to do with devices because you can't actually ask a device to consent to being talked to and have its data scraped or gathered to be analysed. So you said smart meters was an example, charging points is another example. How would that then work? Would that consent have to flow through the owner of that device in effect? That's some of the challenge, I think, trying to work out exactly the best way for those data flows to happen. So if you think about a device that doesn't have an interface, then creating an interface often means processing data using another device as well. And so you're creating sort of potentially more complicated um, data flows with more moving parts <laughs> than may necessarily be strictly necessary. And I kind of feel like I'm slightly falling into areas where I don't know what's going to be in DPDI and it might not go anywhere near addressing any of these challenges, but there were challenges that I see. Um, so, but, you know, trying to find somebody to move into a, a different environment to engage with something that they normally wouldn't engage with is definitely a challenge. Um, and then do that in a way that allows a country to address a country level challenge is, is also a challenge. And, 
And we have to be able to do those things. And we have to be able to do them in ways that are protecting people's privacy, because that is how we're going to address those kinds of nation level challenges that we've got around things like this net zero, um, climate change, you know, even things like national security as well. And getting that balance right and making sure that organizations are actually able to take sensible decisions that protect people's data while also achieving the right objectives is really important for me. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what's going to be in the in the next draft of DPDI, but if it goes some way to providing more of a flexible environment for people to be able to address those challenges in thoughtful ways, then I think that could be a good thing. You do have this question of derivative use of data, anonymized data. I don't think organizations have helped themselves here, but quite often you're interfacing with an organization, you're trying to get the customer services issue resolved or whatever it is, and you're saying, oh, we can't do that because of GDPR. We can't share this information because of GDPR. So people are out there using privacy rules, privacy legislation as an excuse for effectively not doing what the customer wants or not helping the customer to resolve a problem. Does that make it harder for people such as your clients who are actually trying to get privacy right? It's certainly an issue. Um, I mean, people make mistakes in all fields. Mistakes are just something that can happen. And um, and I think some people would be quite happy if they're making those mistakes in a way that's more privacy protective than not. Um, but it's, it is important that as GDPR becomes more mature, or perhaps I should say data protection in general, becomes more mature, that people start to really get more to grips with what is being asked of them and why, I think. You certainly do see a lot of examples of people who know a little bit or have been guided in a particular direction, perhaps. And they're doing things that are not what the GDPR is intended to do. You do see some of that where, where there are mistakes being made. But the other side of that is before we had these rules and before people were behaving like that, there was almost, a, in some cases, a bit of a blasé attitude to data processing and a, a feeling that if you had the data, it was fair game. The pendulum swung. <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's swung in a way that it didn't quite need to swing. Um, but I don't think we're seeing quite as much of that, at very least in organizations that are trying to take data protection seriously. We, we know we're still seeing fines from the ICO for some fairly sharp practice. So it's not like the whole world's improved. Um, but a lot of organizations are trying to get better and they're trying to do data protection properly. And I think the, the challenge is to, to get to that new level of maturity, um, and particularly if we're starting to create more flexibility and, and the ability for organizations to be that level more thoughtful, to actually make the most of that, you need to have a really good level of understanding of the underlying objectives of what you're trying to achieve and the right way to go about this and the risks that people are facing and the, the way that you can control them, those risks from being faced for being realized by individuals. The challenge ultimately is you're asking organizations to think about things in a way that they wouldn't ordinarily think for the processing activity that they're doing. So um, whenever, you, you know, whenever you're doing something, you, you slightly have blinkers on. So I am always going to be going into any project and thinking about it in a data privacy kind of a way. A web developer is always going to be coming in and thinking about it in a web development way. And it's, you know, it's, it only 
becomes good, if you like, and, and really becomes a project that works the way that it should do. When all of those different perspectives come together in a, a you know, in a, in a really controlled way. Um, and what's necessary for organizations is to make sure that they don't lose that voice, which can be a bit of a lone voice because most of a project team is always going to be focused on the project objectives from the organization's perspective. So having that sort of that customer view, that risk view, um, and making sure that it's bringing in the right insights at the right time and guiding people to think really clearly about what it is they're trying to do. That's the challenge. That's going to be the next stage of maturity that stops the kinds of you know, mistakes and sort of mis misinterpretations, if you like, that you were describing in your question. Is there a tendency, though, among organisations to collect too much data? That's also an interesting question. The EU has a bill that's come out recently and part of the preamble to the bill talks about organizations collecting 80% more data than they actually use. And I'm not sure I completely recognize that, although it may be true. But if that is the case, and they've presumably based it on some research, then yeah, you're absolutely right. Organizations are collecting too much data. And that is one of the things that Things like GDPR are designed to try and solve the principle of data minimization is you need to understand what the data is that you need for what you're trying to do, collect all of that data and no more, and not collect data just in case. Now, for some kinds of organizations, that's much more difficult than others. Um, if you are a data owner, for example, or a data broker, um, then it's very difficult to say what data you need because you're going to be packaging up and selling it to organizations for a wide variety of different purposes. Um, but for most organizations, it's, it should be pretty clear to them. And if they're collecting too much data, um, then you know that's just a cost to the organization because you're now spending money on on storing it, on processing it, on safeguarding it that simply isn't necessary. Um, I, I know I see organizations that are working quite hard to try and get rid of large legacy data sets that they've never invested the the money and the resource into, into getting rid of. It's quite time consuming and expensive to clear out an archive, for example. Um, and, and I know I'm seeing that sort of thing. I also see organizations who are accidentally collecting data. So organizations who perhaps have put um, cookies on a website that they no longer use, but the website is, still has those cookies and they're still collecting the data. So those kinds of things happen. And again, as organizations get more mature, I expect some of that to stop. I still find the idea that most organizations are collecting 80% more data than they need quite it's a big number, that. It is an interesting statistic, but I suppose where we're driving to with that is it's become quite easy to collect data and it's become quite easy to store data, especially with the growing popularity of the cloud. And it's incremental. You don't have to go and build a data center and then populate it with huge aisles full of equipment and power and cooling and so on. You just need a credit card. And so incrementally, again, we're adding more capacity all the time as more data flows into the organization. Is what we need to do then to step back and as organizations take a holistic view of what we're actually collecting data for, which data we need, how long we should keep them, and then what agreements we need with our 
consumers, with our users, before we even ask them to hand it over. Well, that's absolutely what the law is telling you to do. Um, and if you think about it, it's sound business sense as well as being what the you know being legally compliant. Even if it's very cheap to store data, you're still running a risk. All of the extra data that you didn't need to have. Let's hope it doesn't happen. But in the event of a data breach, that's just more data that has made your breach worse than it needed to be. It is, as I said before, more data that you've had to pay to store, more data that you'd have to pay to analyze, more data that you'll have to pay to secure. In the end, that is quite a lot of resource. And if you look at the impact that data centers themselves have on things like climate change, they are incredibly energy hungry. You know, there is a climate impact of making sure that you're only processing and storing the data that you need as well. And those kinds of costs can be really hidden to organizations, but they are there. And it, it is worth thinking about those things, as well as the fact that the law is telling you that, yes, you should understand why you're collecting data, be very, very clear about what you're going to do with it, do those things properly, and then erase it when you don't need it anymore. And then that should then be a top level decision for the senior management in the organisation? To an extent, yes. But at the same time, it should also be something that um, you know all of the lower level decision makers are thinking about as well. The principle of data protection by design and default is asking organizations to think when they're designing processes about what information they need to collect, but also when they're carrying out processes to think about it at that point too. We can probably all think of examples where, for example, somebody's been asked to fill in a form with you and they don't complete all of the boxes with you. And in some ways that is data minimization in practice, but it does leave you wondering why the form had so many boxes on it in the first place. So is now the time to look at your data collection policies, look at your privacy policy and make changes so that if new rules do come in, uh, you've at least got your house in order? It's always a good idea to be trying to do that. Um, at any point when you can resource that, I would strongly be recommending that you do it. And I would be suggesting making sure that that's an annual process and that you also notice when sort of material things happen, like a new regulation coming in um, that would trigger you to, to have another look as well. Um, you know, if you do need to make a change, the smaller the number of data assets that the change has to be applied to, the simpler the processes the change has to be applied to. Again, the easier that is to do. Um, the more clear people are about what their data protection goals are, the easier it is to, to make sure that they comply with them. So simplifying is always a good thing, I would say. Camilla Winlow, Head of Data Privacy at GEMSA, on why less can be more when it comes to collecting and managing data. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks' time when we'll look at neurodiversity in the technology workplace and speak to one organisation that works with firms to recruit neurodiverse talent and is hoping to help plug the skills gap. Meanwhile, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk and, of course, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>